There's an interesting slice of English history relating to records of the past. One of those slices of English history has to do with a young man named Albert and a young woman named Victoria. Albert and Victoria met for the first time at Victoria's 17th birthday party in 1836. There were attractions between them, things that were written in memoirs indicate that they may have considered themselves even to be in in love at that time, and they maintained a relationship for the next two and a half years. Victoria, the young woman, became Queen of England in 1837, on June 19th of 1837. In October of 1839, Albert, who was based in Germany and was of royal blood and of that um, slice of society in Germany, Albert came back and visited her in 1839. And some days later, they were engaged and were married on February 10th of the next year. This was an unusual romantic relationship for royals as they were genuinely in love with each other. Sometimes, most times, royals got married for political reasons and other, uh, other things, but there was not true romance involved in the situation. A magazine article from Britain describes it this way. It says, and so began a love affair as passionate as the one portrayed by Jenna Coleman and Tom Hughes in the movie Victoria. While it would be easy to presume the program makers had ramped things up to increase ratings, we know from Victoria's journal and correspondence between the couple that their desire for each other was very real. He goes on to say, in a letter written shortly after their engagement, When Albert returned to Germany briefly, he wrote, I need tell you, I need not tell you that since we left, all my thoughts have been with you at Windsor and that that your image fills my whole soul. Even in my dreams, I never imagined that I could find so much love on earth. Prince Consort Albert and Queen Victoria would be married for 21 years. They would have nine children. Their marriage would only end when Albert succumbed to typhoid fever in 1861. And Queen Victoria would wear nothing but black the rest of her life. She was literally in mourning for the rest of her life. That's amazing, if you think about it. In fact, it is said that During the rest of her years of her reign, she would have her servants bring hot water, after his death, bring hot water to her room so that he could shave as he used to. She was so attached to him. Some of you are probably wondering why I'm starting the sermon referring to something that happened centuries ago. I found it interesting that the abiding indication and validation of their love for each other 
were the letters they sent to each other and the things they wrote about that. To know the passion of their love, just read the letter. We have such a love letter from the God of the universe. I'd like to spend some time this morning focusing on the Word of God and adjusting our attitude in relation to the Scriptures. Some might look in the Bible and see a God of wrath, a God of judgment, a God of extreme high expectations of us and strict holiness, a God who incited wars and the destruction of peoples. But those that read that in this Bible choose to see that and they don't see far enough, they don't read far enough. There are actually references everywhere in the Bible of God's love for his creation, of his love for his people Israel, his love for the righteous, his church, mankind in general. One merely has to mention John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Usually those of us that have someone memorize scripture, that's the most important verse to memorize. We see in that verse that God is a God of love and his love extends to all mankind regardless of skin color, race, gender, intellectual, financial, physical, or emotional barriers. Or we read verses like 1 John 4, 9, it says, in this, the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world and that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God loves us. How do we know this? The Bible tells me so. How do we know how much God loves us? Or the lengths that he went through for a relationship with us? We read it in the Bible. There is no way to know the God of the Bible except by reading the Bible. The Bible is the unique, exhaustive, complete, infallible revelation of who God is and what God does and what he expects of us. In fact, as we heard from Pastor Balaji last week when he talked about the blessed man in Psalm 32, there is a special blessing reserved for those who are obedient to the word of God. And how can we possibly be obedient to the word of God if we don't know what his word says? And how can we know his intense love for us without tapping into this only special revelation that God has given to us so that we would know, after all, and this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 
That's found in 1 John 5, 11 through 13. How much more loving can God be to give us eternal life through his son at no cost to us? I'd like for a few minutes as we focus on um, the believer and the word of God and what our relationship is with the believer. Our Our anchor text is found in Psalm 1. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 1, if you would, this morning. Psalm 1 is a, is a short passage of Scripture. It's a short uh, chapter. It's one that's been very influential to me. It's a passage that I've had ample opportunity to study, to meditate on, to teach about in a number of, on a number of occasions. It's not very long. In fact, it's a very good passage to memorize. We're going to read it this morning so we can be- become more familiar with it. So let's read together Psalm 1. I'm reading in the New King James. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Ah, I slipped into King James Version there for a second. The, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in this congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Certainly there's all kinds of focuses that we could have on this passage but we're going to focus this morning on chapter on verse 2, and next week we'll focus on verse 3. Um, but as we do this, I would like to again place this before God in prayer. Lord, thank you again for this opportunity to share your word, to share these thoughts that you've placed in my heart and on my mind. And I pray, Lord, that it would benefit each one of us. It will help with the trans- transformations that you continue to desire to see in us. And that we would go away from this passage of scripture having been changed in some way. Lord, empower me through the power of your spirit as I speak your words and not mine. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Today's message is part of a two-sermon mini-series based on the truths found in verses 2 and 3. The interesting verse about this, uh, the interesting thing about this verse is that it suggests a relationship. I know, it's not a relationship between two people. It's a relationship between the child of God and the word of God. Now you might say, how can, a, how, can a, how can one have a relationship with an inanimate object? I guess that, that's the kind of question you could ask those about their phones, about their computers, or about any ho- other host of other things that are extremely important to us. Who among us hasn't talked to our car at times? Or to our pets? Or to our plants? You know, they say if you talk to your plants, they grow better, right? Yeah. Give and take relationship with your plants. We all have things in our lives that we devote time and energy and resources to that we expect things in return from. We are told that the blessed man here that's referred to in verse 1, blessed is the man, and it goes on. And it's the same kind of thing as in verse, so chapter 32, when Pastor Joshua was talking about the blessed man there. It's the, it's the same idea. 
this person who in Psalm 32 was blessed because he had his sins forgiven, this blessed person here is, is seen in a different way. This person who has found blessedness and happiness by being reconciled with God finds his delight in the law of the Lord. That's an interesting word, delight. The Hebrew word, in fact, is translated delight at, in different places. It's also translated pleasure. It has the idea of to take pleasure in. In fact, it's translated pleasure more often than it's translated delight. Isn't that interesting? It's translated pleasure in places like Psalm 111 and verse 2, which says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all those who have pleasure in them or who delight in them. In Malachi 1.10, God is speaking to those who sacrifice uh, insincerely. And he plainly says to them, I have no pleasure in you. I do not take delight in you. That's the, that's the sense of this word where it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He takes pleasure in the law of the Lord. So this relationship with the true believer and the word of God takes on a deeper meaning whether naturally or intentionally, a true believer, a true believer is one who takes pleasure in the Bible to such an extent that it becomes one of his highest priorities. It is what David talks about when he says in Psalm 119, verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimony as much as in all riches. In other words, to David, there are no riches that find themselves at a higher level of priority than the Word of God. That's what we talk about when we talk about this area of delight. And what is the evidence of an outworking of this delight or pleasure that the Blessed One finds in God's love letter? It is that in His law He meditates day and night. So number two, we talk about this notion of meditating. Now, I know just merely the mention of meditating or meditation probably conjures up in your mind images of passionate and devout religious individuals cloistered in dark buildings in plain clothing, devoting all of their waking moment to reading and memorizing and quoting scripture in obscure languages. But, uh, and, and there have been those in history we know, history tells us that there have been those that thought that passages like this meant that's the lifestyle that God was requiring of them. This brought to mind uh, a favorite musical of mine. Who here remembers um, A Fiddler on the Roof, right? That's a favorite musical of mine. Lovely songs and everything in there. And, and if you don't know the story of the fiddler on the roof, it's about a poor but devout Jewish farmer in the days of the Russian pogroms uh, with a big family. And at one point in this, in this musical, he sings a song, and it's called, If I Were a Rich Man. And one of the, one of the verses of this song 
says this, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men several hours every day. And that would be the sweetest thing of all. So this idea of meditation, of spending large chunks of time in meditation of God's word, there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, it's probably something that would be very beneficial to our lives. But most of us, including Tevye, could never aspire to that because we're not rich men and we don't have these large chunks of time to devote to that. So it's impractical to think that this verse is telling us that we should sit somewhere and hum in, in monk's clothing and, and meditate on God's word for every waking hour. So it obviously is calling us to something beyond that type of a lifestyle. And while I'm not demeaning those who make such choices, particularly those who believe that this is in fact what God is calling them to do, I don't believe that this is what this verse is asking of the true believer. So what does this verse mean? This verse and others like Joshua 1.8 that is very similar to this. Um, in fact, turn over to Joshua 1.8. You'll see very similar words. This Joshua's challenge to the children of Israel as they're getting ready to enter into the, uh, the promised land. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6, you'll see similar words. This was um, the challenge that God was giving to the children of Israel in relation to his word. And it says in Deuteronomy 6, 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your, of your house and, and on your gates. And it's interesting that the children of Israel took this literally to the extent that the more devout Jews would actually put these little things on their hands and, and have little portions of scripture that they hung on their foreheads. But I don't believe that this is a literal commandment for us to do in, in a literal fashion. I believe it goes far beyond that. And, and I think that... Um, that we, we should be, rather than put the scripture in front of us and walk around with the scripture in front of us all day long or membering, uh, mumbling passages of scripture as we walk around, I think that it should be in our minds and it should be something we use to color the way we look at every part of our life, at every aspect of our existence throughout each day. The, the child of God will view all of his daily experiences through the light of the scripture and it helps interpret every part of his life according to the truths that God has communicated to us through his word. It's also found in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. That says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. 
starts out, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How do we keep our way pure? How do we walk in such a way that the world recognizes the purity of our lives? By taking heed thereto, according to thy word. In other words, I look at my life, I look at the word. I look at my life, I look at the word. Every step that I take, I consider, what is the word what is the reality of the truths and the principles of God's, uh, of God's word and how do they apply to my life? It's like this. My life, God's word. And I look and I ponder them both. And when one slips out of place, I say the word of God is true and I must align my life with God's word. I must not align God's word with my life. I don't make the word of God match what I do. I make what I do match the word of God. That's what it has to do. That's what it's talking about and suggesting and and commanding us to do in this area of meditation. But then beyond that, and you know me, I like to look at words. I like to discover the meaning beyond the English word. It always helps to interpret the meaning of confusing passages or unclear things like this word meditate. What is the extent to which we should meditate? What is the outworking of meditation in our lives? Sometimes it, it, it helps to look at this word meditate in other passages of scripture. In other verses, what, what do other verses say? How do other verses translate this idea of meditating? And you'll probably be a little bit surprised. This word meditate is also found in Psalm 35, 28 that says, And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness. Psalm 37, 30, The the mouth of the righteous shall speak wisdom. Psalm 71, 24, My tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all day long. You see two things that pop up here. There is a verbalizing component of this word. Sometimes we think that meditation is just sitting quietly and pondering. No, this, this verse suggests that in the process of the meditation, it comes out of our mouth. It's something that is included in our conversation. It's more than just thinking and pondering within. It's, we also speak of them in our everyday life. The Bible is our delight and our pleasure Something that we use to interpret all of the daily experiences that happen to us. And we will not keep from making it part of our conversation. If our relationship with God is such a consuming priority, we will end up talking about him. But it does not mean here either that all day long, that's all we talk about is the Bible and quote verses of scripture. It means rather that God and the Bible is at the tip of our tongue. And that as we interact with people, it inevitably comes out as people speak of their experiences that may or may not be devoid of God and any notion of the scripture. We, in response to that, when we relate our perspectives of life and the things that we go through, God pops out and scripture pops out and that's the basis upon which we look and observe at the things that we do. It's a completely different notion. 
And this is not something that we program ourselves to do. You know, as I go through the day, if there are things that I want to remember and things that are important to me, guess what I do? I, I program them into my brain. And then a reminder pops up and I say, oh, this is important. I better do this. But this thing here that he's talking about meditating on God and, and meditating on his word day and night this is not something we, don't, we program ourselves to be. We don't, we, we don't put a timer, a five-minute timer on, our, on our, our phone, and every five minutes, oh, i got to talk about God. i got to mention a Bible verse. It's something that happens. As it's important to me, as it's a priority to me in my life, it's something that comes out. It bubbles out, whether I mean to or not. Brings us back to this idea of relationship. When a man and a woman have intense feelings for each other, they don't have to be prompted to talk about each other. Especially when they're apart from each other. It's something they do naturally to the extent sometimes that their friends may wish they would talk about something else for a change. We've all been there, right? We've all had these intense, loving, romantic relationships and all we can talk about is, oh, I wonder what he's doing now. I think he's doing that. Oh, I, I think she's, she's shopping now. You know, and, and we find uh, great delight in discussing or talking about the person that, uh, that we have these romantic relationships with. Imagine as well a young woman who is known to have a romantic relationship with a man, but never talks about him and spends much of her time talking about her other male friends. Common sense would have her friends wondering about the true nature of the relationship that she claims to have. So these are things to think about when it comes to God's word. Delight. Meditate. But we're going to go on briefly. I want to jump verse 3 because we're going to come back to that next week. I want to briefly touch on verse 4 where it talks about the ungodly. As we continue on, uh, I... You know, it, it, it occurs to me that if verse 2 is true, and I believe it is, I believe it's as true, reliable, as applicable as the rest of Scripture, if verse 2 is two, or it's true, then verse 4 is true as well. And it clearly states that the ungodly are not so. We sometimes think, oh, it's talking about verse 3. The ungodly are not like the tree planted by the river of water and stuff, whatever. But the ungodly are not so talks about the ungodly versus the blessed. These then who do not delight in God's word are the ungodly. Ouch. Those who do not meditate in his law day and night to the extent to which we talked about it and explained it. This idea of meditating in God's law day and night. Those who do not do this are the ungodly. Now, let's be clear about this. It is not that they are ungodly because they do not delight enough in God's word. It's that they don't delight in God's word because they're ungodly. Let's not get the cart in front of the horse. It's not that they are assigned to the ranks of the ungodly because they don't meditate on God's word long enough or often enough. 
It's that they don't meditate on God's word because they're ungodly. The answer to this conundrum is not to force yourself to treasure God's word more or to prompt yourself to think about God more and to talk about God more. Be careful, my friends, to try to qualify as true believers through the means of supernatural, superficial, sorry, standards imposed by many religions. Church attendance to the right kind of church. Putting enough money in the offering. Charitable acts for the poor and the needy. Or sufficient time spent in meditation of God's word. Some people, some superficial religions would say, you can only be saved or demonstrate your Christianity by doing enough of these things. They would say that you uh, stop being ungodly and become godly merely by meditating more on the scriptures. Sorry, it's not so. You have a relationship with God, a true, vibrant relationship with the God of the Bible, and it causes you to delight in his word and to meditate on God's word. Be assured that it is God who separates the sheep and the goats. And it only happens when it's too late. It is not the sheep who find the Bible tedious and boring. And it is not the sheep who make excuses for not attending church. The answer to this conundrum is to come to him and accept the free gift of his son and begin a relationship with such a kind and loving and benevolent savior. And then you will realize that he accepts all of us just as we are, and you will not be consumed with the superficial aspects of religion. You will be caught up in the joys of a liberating relationship with a loving God. So please, let us examine our hearts to make sure that we have accepted God's invitation to a relationship that makes him and the Bible the center of our lives lest we be found as the chaff which the wind drives away. I don't know if I'm stepping on your toes because I'm stepping on mine. But it's something that we have to talk about. Too many Christians leave the Bible on the shelf. Too many Christians find all kinds of other things to do on a Sunday morning than go to church. And it's, we, we really should examine our hearts to find out where we are. I want to talk about spiritual discipline for a little while. I want to touch on this dimension of this discussion regarding the relationship between a believer and God's word, and that is spiritual discipline. It would be foolish of, of us to think of any relationship that does not include the idea of making ourselves do what sometimes may seem difficult and uncomfortable. I don't want you to think in any way that just because we talked about um, the blessed, that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it all day long, day and night, whatever, that those things are naturally always the things that we aspire to. We struggle with the flesh. We know we struggle with the flesh. There are times when we get up in the morning and and whether physically, emotionally, intellectually, we're just, it's, it's hard. There are times when you get up on a Sunday morning and you, you have a hard enough time dragging yourself out of bed, let alone drag yourself to church. I understand that. And, and don't for a moment think that 
I've not been there myself. But there is a component of spiritual discipline that applies here. This has to do with the health of a relationship. It, it, it has to do with spiritual health and nutrition. Making sure that our spiritual intake leads to spiritual health. This happens to be on par with physical nutrition, by the way. Those of us that are parents understand that. Those of you that are going to be parents will understand that. I'm sure we all know that if a person wants to be healthy, he or she must have a healthy diet. And that a healthy diet cannot be replaced by anything else in one's quest to have a a healthy lifestyle. Not be plagued by illness, weakness, and poor health. I'm sure all of us, I'm sure to all of us, someone comes to mind who is not as healthy as they could be because they don't have a very healthy diet. Parents mostly understand that their children must eat vegetables more than cakes and cookies and candy if they want their children to have the benefits of being healthy. No amount of exercise, homeopathic remedies, or medication can replace the need for a healthy diet. And this is a great metaphor for our spiritual health, by the way. The Bible talks about it in these terms as well. Jeremiah 15, 16. Jeremiah said, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Ezekiel said something very similar. He said, Moreover, God said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I gave you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. In Matthew 4, Satan is tempting Christ, and he tells Christ to turn the stones into bread. To satisfy his hunger. And Jesus' reply is, instead of being concerned with satisfying our physical hunger, we should be more focused on satisfying our spiritual hunger with every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God satisfies our spiritual hunger. Paul, in his first letter to them, called the people of the church of Corinth babies. Why? Because they were unwilling or unable to move from milk to partaking of spiritual, solid spiritual food that would sustain a more vigorous spiritual health. You see, spiritual health, vitality, strength, growth, bearing fruit is dependent on a healthy spiritual diet that can only come with spiritual discipline. The true believer is faced with constant choices to bypass fleshly distractions and worldly substitutes and partake of the less appealing yet more beneficial biblical truths and principles. Children have to be told and often forced to eat their vegetables and other things that are healthy for them. If you tell children to eat whatever they want, they're going to eat the cakes and the cookies and the the candies. And they're going to be, and the, and the consequences will be more than they're able to bear. As they grow older, as they've been part of that instructional process, they will understand, they will probably not like anymore the vegetables, other than Latondo, of course. She seems to have an affinity for vegetables. 
Most of us have to be made to eat our vegetables, even when we're adults. But if you're like me, you understand that what your wife cooks for you is good for you, so you're going to eat it. And you're going to, you will begin to like it and, and not dislike it as much, at least. Not the cooking, the vegetables. <sighs> I get myself in trouble. So, as I said, the true believer is faced with all these distractions. These things that pull our eyes off of what is healthy for us and make us desire and long for those that aren't healthy for us, but that are more appealing. We apply spiritual discipline and we understand the value of what is maybe less appealing, but more healthy. We do this, we do this spiritual discipline thing, we do this by walking past the counsel of the ungodly. By not loitering near the paths of the sinner. By avoiding the, the seat of the scornful. This takes discipline. There will, be, there will always be the ungodly, the sinner, and the scorners surrounding us all the time. Demanding our attention. Providing us with distractions. Enticing us with unhealthy spiritual food. The more we incline our ear to the scriptures, the harder it will be to hear those other distractions. The easier it will be to make healthy choices that enhance our liberties in Christ. The idea of spiritual discipline is reinforced in many passages in the New Testament. In one of those, 1 Corinthians 9.25, probably many of you will recognize, Paul asserts that those who run for a prize must be temperate. Self-controlled in all things. Meaning that we must not be controlled by our appetites and desires. In other places, like 1 Timothy and Titus, several passages he talks about, especially to leaders, the need to be self-controlled and temperate. The need to um, turn away from our desires and our natural inclinations and our fleshly lusts. In short... While the true believer does treasure God's word, leading us to spend more time in meditation of the Bible, there are times as well that we must apply spiritual discipline to the equation and force ourselves to go against fleshly inclinations and choose to partake God's law, which will in turn lead to better spiritual health. The interesting thing about self-control and discipline is that it brings us back to where we started today's message, a relationship based around the love letter that God sent to us. What kind of a relationship would it be if the love letters between Queen Victoria and Albert were only a small part of all the other correspondences they got? What if they were both writing and receiving love letters from all different kinds of people? Can you imagine Queen Victoria getting up in the morning and trying to choose which letter she would read from which one of her many suitors? That would more than likely have occasioned criticism from others that she's not very serious in her relationship with Albert. You know as well as I do, if you have a person that you're romantically inclined towards and you're apart from a while, and you send letters back and forth. And there are all other kinds. Of, and I know this is the day of 
snail mail. We don't do letters. We do emails nowadays. And, and I understand that. But out of all those correspondences that happened between uh, that, 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 that that person would get, which ones are the ones that that person is most likely to keep and make sure to say, stay safe? It's the ones from the person that they're romantically engaged with, right? I mean, you know, you've all seen the movies where the young lady gets this box out and it's the box is filled with all the letters and she reads through them and with a silly grin on her face and, and the young man that has uh, this old fold up, folded up letter in his wallet and he gets it out every once in a while and reads. We've, we've seen that. We know that. The point is, it's, it's a discipline. If you like the communications from a particular person, you're going to make sure and save them. Maybe you got a whole folder of emails. And those are the ones you save. And every once in a while you go through and read those because you want to remember what the feelings were. What, what the, uh, the thoughts were that that you were going through when you first got those, there's a discipline involved. In the same way, the health of our relationship with God is demonstrated by a healthy relationship with His Word. So we should ask ourselves some questions, right? How often during the course of the week do you pick up the Bible and read it? How much dust is on your Bible? How often during the week does God's name even cross your lips? Do we look at things that happen during the course of the week in the light of the truths and principles of God's word? Or is that just something that's reserved for an hour or two on Sunday morning? Please understand, this is not me guilting you into reading the Bible more. It doesn't work. I've tried it with my children. This is me being concerned about if, in fact, there's a relationship with God at all. And then, if there is, about whether or not you are as spiritually healthy as you could be. This message is not about me. Unless it's to the extent in which I can or cannot put these things into practice in my own life. Pastors do not preach messages about reading the Bible more to satisfy a little tickle up our backs that we had an impact in your reading the Bible more. That has nothing to do with it. Pastors preach messages about the Word of God being more important and being more a part of our lives because it's a healthy thing to do. And because if you don't, you're an unhealthy Christian at best. Let me just tell you, It is absolutely the overriding experience of my life for the past 56 years and four days. Everything that has been part of my life experience that is good, positive, encouraging, peaceful, liberating, noteworthy, and memorable has come from being knowledgeable of, obedient to, and faithful to God's revelation in His Word. Conversely, every single negative, selfish, guilt-ridden, regrettable, forgettable, enslaving, and shameful thing that I've ever been guilty of doing has been a direct result of neglecting, disregarding, and disobeying God's word. 
Some of you who know me might wonder why I spend the time that I do reading and meditating on the scriptures. Why church is as important to me as it is. Some might think me downright fanatical, including some Christians. But to me, it's just as difficult to understand when there is so much to gain from a healthy diet of God's word and so much to lose from neglecting it, why we're more apt to neglect it than we are to obey it and to take heed to it. Why we so often neglect the Bible and find other things to do than attend church on a Sunday morning. Again, this has nothing to do with trying to use guilt and shame to drive us to better practices in our Christianity. Although, if that's what it takes, if that's what actually takes to make us all read the Bible more and attend church more, maybe it's not a bad thing. It is particularly disheartening to me to know how available God's word is to us in so many different forms in so many different ways so many so many different aspects of our life and to see how hard we work at neglecting it and and to know and understand the incredible eternal eternal benefits from reading the bible more how much of our life is measurably better and improved because we know the Bible, because we listen and read the Bible, and because we obey the Bible. And some of you that are hearing me say this will continue on without a change. And that's particularly distressing to me. I know in regards to the Bible... And how similar it is to physical nutrition. That when you're young and you don't understand the benefits of vegetables and eating your meat and potatoes and, and, and partaking of all those healthy things, you would naturally leave those aside unless you were encouraged to understand and, and, and benefit from the healthiness of them. I know, I understand that. Somewhere along the line... We have to go from our, our youthly, fleshly impulses to leave to one side what is most beneficial and partake of what is not beneficial. We have to move from that. Like Paul encouraged the Corinthians to go from the milk to the solid food. And that, my friends, is a sign of maturity. And everyone knows maturity doesn't hit us all at the same age. Sometimes it takes years to become mature enough to understand the character that's involved, to make those choices, to buckle down and to understand out of all the things that I could be doing for the next half an hour, the most appealing thing is not to read the Bible, but I know it's going to have the best impact on the course of this day and on the course of my life. So I will... Find my delight, deliberately, intentionally, find my delight in the Word of God and spend time reading it 
and meditating on it and praying God that he will open the meaning to me. Next week, we will go on to verse 3 of of Psalm 1 and talk about general health and expectations of a person who is anchored in God's word. I hope you come. I hope you're part of that. And so let's pray as we close this morning. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for helping us to understand how important of it uh, how important it is to those of us who understand how important it is and lord we know that the true value of it would not re- really ever be understood un- until it's taken away and i i pray that that would not happen but lord may we find more value may we find more priority in your word may we intentionally drive ourselves to delve in its riches, to come to understand you more as we spend more time in your word. I pray that this would be accomplished in all of our lives, even incrementally, Lord. And may you be honored and glorified as we continue through this day. We pray these things in your name. Amen.